Hello everyone, my name is Dave and I'm part of the team at Gold Hill and today I am carrying on in our series that we've been going through on Sundays called Life. Today and next week I am going to be exploring a couple of uh, topics and issues that are important ones in our world that address that idea of life, how we treat life specifically. And today we are going to be looking at a topic that we're calling every single life. And particularly today we're going to be focusing on the theme of racial justice and how we can uh, respect and uh, love the life found in every single person, regardless of background or ethnicity or race or culture. So I recognise that for some who are watching this, this could be sensitive, this could be very close to home, uh, and I just want to be aware of that and sensitive to that uh, as we begin. Last year, in the wake of the death of George Floyd in America, there was the beginnings really of a, of a global conversation uh, of things happening all over the world. This wasn't new, but there was maybe an increased intensity or an increased awareness this time. That led to all kinds of things being done. Uh, various movements, the Black Lives Matter movement, various riots and protests happening across the world. Some of those very productive, some of those very constructive, some of those very healthy and helpful. Some of them not so. More recently in the UK, the government has published its Sewell Report, the report that was investigating race and race relations and racism in the UK. It has controversially concluded that there is no systemic or structural racism in the UK. I say controversially because that has not been met with acceptance by many. Uh, many have questioned not just the findings of the report, but also the process, including one person who was part of uh, consulting on the report, who has said that they do not believe that the way that the government has positioned it is a fair representation of the findings that they helped to produce. There are all kinds of difficult questions. There are all kinds of things that happen in our world, in the distant past and in the recent past, that inform the way that we explore this topic and this issue. But at every step of the way, certainly over the last few years, there's been this, this, this constant sort of coming back to this, to this idea that something has to change. There are many across our world who believe something fundamental needs to change in this arena. So the question I want to explore today really is, does it? What does God have to say about it? Does God want there to be a change in our world, in our church, in our lives? Does something need to change? I want to address at this point a question that some people might have watching this, which is, is Dave just being um, needlessly uh, progressive or politically correct, or to use that phrase that's becoming more and more popular, woke? Am I addressing this just because it's a, it's a fad and the world is talking about it and has been talking about it, and so I want to get on that bandwagon? I hope, by the way, that those of you who've known me for a while or known my leadership or ministry for a while would think better of my motivations than that. But ultimately, I want to say I don't believe that's what's motivating me. I believe that in some ways, actually, the church, particularly the white majority church in the West, has not addressed these things as much as we should have. And there are various reasons for that. But I believe that actually in some ways the world is, has been helping the church to wake up to these things when it should have been the church that was leading the way. Why do I say that? Well, I want to come to scripture. I want to explore scripture together because within the pages of scripture, 
I believe that we see a call to pursue racial justice, to pursue racial equality and equity. And it's something that our nations aren't always the best at doing. And it's something that we aren't always the best at doing. I want to begin at the very end. I want to begin with a picture that we find in scripture of what heaven is like and a picture of heavenly worship, a picture that, that depicts perfection as people come together before God in worship. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. This is a picture of heavenly worship. And notice that there is every nation, every tribe, every people, every language represented there, standing before this person described as the lamb, who we understand we know to be Jesus, the sacrificial lamb who died for you and for me. And that is what brings these people together. We read that they're wearing white robes. Elsewhere in Revelation, we hear the significance of that, that these robes are, are given to us, that we have been made pure, and as a result, we're able to wear bright, shining white as we come before God, because our clothes, our, what, what, what we dress in has been washed, washed clean by him. Our very souls have been washed clean by him. And that is what affords us the opportunity to stand there. Notice that, that, that people's tribes and nations and languages, they're not stripped away. They're not all removed. But instead, people come together with their diversities, with their differences, with their uniqueness with their nationalities, with their ethnicity, with their race, with their language. And in their own language, they come together and worship Jesus. This is a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. Everyone coming together with our differences, with our own backgrounds and baggage, and coming together before Jesus, made clean by him to worship him. He is the, is the unifier and not anything else. There is sometimes a response to questions of race or concerns about, about race with this idea that we just shouldn't see race, that we shouldn't see differences in ethnicities. We're all one people. We are all the same. We are all humanity. And there are elements of that that are true. But the idea that we shouldn't see race, that we should see everyone as exactly the same, regardless of their background or ethnicity, is not biblical. It's not what we see in this depiction of heaven, in this depiction of what the kingdom of God should look like, where everyone's nationhood and individuality is not stripped away in service for something bigger, but is celebrated and is brought to that something bigger who is Jesus. I want to encourage you if your approach is to say, well, I don't even see the difference in the people around me. See it, celebrate it, encourage it, champion it. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Which actually slightly raises an interesting question is, am I the best kind of person to be talking about this? I'm a white person in a white majority country, in a white majority church, speaking about issues of race. Is my voice really the most important? I don't believe my voice is the most important. But it's not to say that my voice doesn't have a place. I too have a racial identity. I can tick a box on a census about my race, about my ethnicity. But all of us do. All of us have a racial background and all of us have different things that will inform who we are. 
different parts of our identity, all of which Jesus calls us to bring to him instead of strip away before we can come to him. But each of us, given that we have that, it leads us to have blind spots. There are things that I will never fully understand because of the position that I have, because I exist in a white majority culture as a white man. There are things that I will not be able to fully understand. There are things I can do about that. I can seek to educate myself. I can seek to grow and understand. But it's important that we listen to all voices as we seek to understand all of this. So if the kingdom of God represents a community where everyone comes with their differences, which are celebrated instead of stripped away, how is it that the earliest church got on with embodying that? Well, the truth is it was a struggle. It was something that really marked the early life of the church as something that was difficult. If you find yourself uh, feeling as though you're treading on eggshells as you're trying to talk about issues of race, if you find it difficult, if you find it new, then can I encourage you that you are not alone. And actually within scripture, we see the early church really wrestling with this and often messing it up in big ways. Jesus was, was Jewish. He was part of the Jewish people. And the, the earliest followers of Jesus were also all Jewish. He came first to the Jewish people. Now, during the life of Jesus, he indicated in so many ways that that wasn't where he wanted things to stop. He wanted to reach out to people of other racial groups, other ethnic backgrounds, other people groups, other nations and languages and tribes. But the early church struggled to really grasp hold of that and struggled to embody that. Jesus couldn't have done a much clearer job in, in, in demonstrating that that was the way that he wanted uh, his people to be. He mixed with people of many different backgrounds and races and ethnicities in ways that were often uh, considered uh, radical or strange or straight up wrong by others. If you look at the, at the Gospels, the stories of Jesus, it's actually a very multiracial cast of people that you find within those stories. There are people who, because we're maybe less familiar with the exact places and names that, that are referenced within Scripture, there are people who we may not realise are being singled out and highlighted as being people who were not Jewish and people who were actually from places that were very different from, the, from, from, from where Jesus himself was from. Think of uh, Simon, the man who carried Jesus' cross. He's referred to as Simon of Cyrene. He would have been a very dark-skinned black man. We don't necessarily notice that in our Bible translations, but it was something that the authors wanted us to know. Jesus famously mixed with Samaritans. He made the, the good Samaritan the hero of his story, considered abhorrent to most of the people who would have been listening to that, where there was that real division between these people who shared some common ancestry, but who considered each other to be scum. And yet Jesus stepped over those divides, stepped over those barriers, and chose to embrace and reach out. But it wasn't just with those who shared some common ancestry. Jesus also was radical in that he stepped over the lines and reached out even to, to the Romans, to the occupying forces. In Matthew chapter 8, there's a story of a centurion coming to Jesus and asking him to heal someone who was part of his household. And Jesus looks at him and gives him one of the, the biggest affirmations that he gives to anyone in the Gospels. He says, I haven't even seen faith this great among my own people. 
And then he goes on to say this, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, for those of us who are not Jewish, like myself, we might read this and think, well, of course, of course, Jesus wants to embrace people from, 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 from other nations, not just from the Jewish nation, because, because that means he wants to include me. But those who were first hearing this, it would have felt so strange. It would have felt like something that they weren't wanting, weren't expecting, and didn't like at all. The idea that other people would be included. It was something that went against a lot of the ways that people thought and acted and behaved. And yet Jesus said that he wanted to welcome people from everywhere to come and take their place alongside his own people. That was what Jesus did. He laid out that path. But the early church took a long time and really struggled to grasp this fact. Peter, one of Jesus's uh, closest followers and closest friends, even though he'd experienced all these things, he'd witnessed Jesus' example. He'd seen the way that Jesus behaved. It took him a long time. And for him, it came to a head when another Roman centurion uh, came to visit him. And God prepared him for that visit by giving him a dream, a vision as he was, as he was sleeping. See, Peter from an early age would have been instructed not to interact with or, or, or eat with people from other nations, with non-Jewish people, not to share what was called table fellowship. But he was also taught not to eat non-kosher food, non-Jewish acceptable food. And God gave him a vision of all kinds of unkosher, unacceptable food. And Peter said, well, I can't possibly eat that. And God tells him to. Three times he tells him to. Peter was good with things happening in threes. And God was doing this in order to reveal to Peter that actually anything that, that God says is clean is clean. And it's not up to us to say it's not. And then Peter has this knock on the door from Cornelius, the centurion. And he embraces him and he welcomes him in. And ultimately there are baptisms as a result of what happens. And Peter sums up his revelation through this like this in Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. God shows no favoritism, wants everyone to be embraced, wants everyone to be included and accepted and integrated and part of the family. But the church for a long time, even after this, after one of their key leaders had had this revelation, they still wrestled with that, with this idea, okay, well, God wants us to include people from other places, but, but surely they still need to follow our rules. They still need to behave like us. They need to effectively become like a Jewish person in order to fit in. And so there are questions about whether they should be circumcised. There's questions about whether they should still eat the correct foods, whether they should go through the Jewish rituals and observe them. There was still this question of, okay, well, well, maybe these people can be part of it, but they still need to behave like us, become like us. No, that wasn't what God wanted. There were very few things that God said, this is a universal of humanity, how people are to behave. And some of the more cultural traditions, some of the things which God had given to the Jewish people were meant for the Jewish people and not meant for everyone to have to become like. See, the church, and we see the church in Acts grappling with this and coming gradually to this realisation, it's hard. But they came to the conclusion that the church should have no one dominant human culture. 
No racial background, no tribe, no community, no language should have domination over the church at a global level or at a local level. There should be no second class citizens within the kingdom of God and within his church. And if the church should look like that, it's only because that's what God wants the kingdom of God to be like. That's what the kingdom of God is like, where God's rule and reign are fully embraced, fully accepted. As we saw in that picture of heavenly worship in Revelation, those distinctions and differences are celebrated rather than being put into some kind of order of which ones are dominant and which ones come second or third or fourth. And if the kingdom of God is like that, then surely those of us who want to follow God, who want to submit to his rule and his reign, we would want to see the world be like that. And we would want to see our nation be like that. But the world is not always like that. Our nation is not always like that. In the UK, a young black mother is four times more likely to die in childbirth than a white mother. Black women in the UK are four times more likely to die during pregnancy. Three out of five of all the healthcare workers who have died from COVID-19 have been black, Asian or from another minority ethnic group, even while those groups only make up one in five of the members of staff. Black children wait the longest to be adopted. 45% of children from black, Asian and minority ethnic groups are living in poverty, compared with 26% of children in white British families. Black workers with degrees earn 23% less on average than white workers. A black man is 19 times more likely to be stopped and searched by the Metropolitan Police than a white person. Black men are 26% more likely to receive a custodial sentence. 26% of the prison population in the UK are from a minority ethnic group, even though minority ethnic groups make up only 14% of our whole population. I don't know about you, but I find some of those statistics very hard to hear, very hard to say. We need to remember that behind every one of those statistics are a thousand stories and everyday experiences of people, of millions of people. I also want to recognise that each of those statistics is complicated. It's complex. You might be able to say, well, some of those things might have reasons for them. And there are reasons for all of them. But when we explore those reasons that might seem simple, that might seem easy, what we find is more questions. Take, for example, that last, last statistic. 26% of the prison population in the UK are from a minority ethnic group, despite, making, despite minority ethnic groups making up 14% of our whole population. In other words, our prisons are disproportionately full of people from minority ethnic backgrounds. Now, we might say, well, maybe that's because those from minority ethnic groups commit more crime. I'm not saying that. But if that were the case, then that raises other questions. Well, why is that the case? Why is crime more prevalent within certain communities than others? And then we look at statistics connecting crime with poverty and we ask what the causes of poverty are. And it raises all kinds of other questions. 
All of these things come together, all of these things play in and out of one another. But the conclusion that ultimately these questions, I believe, need to lead us to is that, is that in our nation we do not yet have racial equality and racial justice. That there are things that are unequal, that are unequitable, that are wrong. There are all kinds of factors that play into that, that cause that. But as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who wants to live my life pursuing the kingdom of God, depicted in that heavenly scene of oneness in the midst of diversity, of no one group being named and called out as the best one or the dominant one. As, we, as, as I seek to pursue what I believe God wants us to pursue and what the early church found so hard to pursue, I believe that something does, in fact, need to change. The good news, the good news that I have, that I hold on to, is that I believe that the message that the church has is a message of good news and is ultimately the one thing, the one thing that could do something about this, because that one thing is Jesus. Jesus, that great unifier. Jesus who died for people no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what language they speak, no matter what skin colour they have. He is the great unifier, the one who all can come to and through whom all can be united. I believe that there is work to be done. I believe there is work to be done in my life, personally. I believe there is work to be done in our communities, in our churches. I believe there's work to be done in our country and in our world. Jesus wants to do that work. The Spirit of God, I believe, is at work pursuing racial justice. Anything that dehumanises is something that is abhorrent to God and he wants us to pursue that. So what can we do? I want to finish and just suggest three things that each of us could commit to do. The first is pray. Jesus's great model of a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. If we've seen in that depiction in Revelation what God's kingdom looks like in terms of issues of race, then we need to pray. We need to get on our knees and pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where there is inequity, where there is inequality, where there is injustice, Lord, your kingdom come. We start with prayer. Something else we can all also do is we can examine ourselves. We can think about ourselves, we can think about our own experiences, our own racial backgrounds, our own uh, ways of behaving. And this is where some of those blind spots that I mentioned earlier on, we can, we can try and examine ourselves and try and understand and try and think whether our behaviour is helpful or not. But sometimes we'll be blind to things. We all have blind spots. None of us has the complete picture. So there are things that we can do to help educate ourselves as well as examining ourselves. We have some plans to help us as a church family to explore some of these things together and you'll hear more about that if you're a member of this church in due course. But some things that you could do, you could, you, you could read, you, you, could, you could explore some of these things. I want to give you three very quick recommendations. These are all books that I have read in the last uh, year. 
The first is called We Need to Talk About Race by Ben Lindsay, specifically speaking about race and the UK church. Really eye-opening, really helpful, really challenging. A good way in to exploring things. Another is called How to Fight Racism by Jamar Tisby. And this is practical. It talks about specific things that we can do to explore uh, and to grow and to help. Uh, really, really good and again, really challenging. And finally, uh, Reading While Black by Dr. Esau McCauley. This book is about biblical theology. It's about exploring themes in the Bible that sometimes get overlooked and sometimes get neglected. And particularly looking at the work of uh, African-American uh, biblical scholars and, and people within that community who can shed so much light on things. It has a chapter on slavery. It has a chapter on uh, a theology of policing. It has chapters on what to do with anger and what to do with identity. It's, again, a really good and challenging book. All three written by Christians. All three seeking to, to help God's kingdom come about more fully. I've benefited hugely from each of those and I'd encourage you to, to explore things as well. And finally, do what you can. We all have different spheres of influence, whether that be families, whether that be friendship groups, whether that be our work environments, whatever it is, we, we all operate in different worlds. We all have different spheres of influence. And whatever yours are, do what you can to promote equality, to promote integration of different kinds of people. Do what you can to encourage that, to champion that, to celebrate it where it exists and to challenge where it doesn't. Each of us, that will look different. It may be as simple as saying to someone, I'm not sure that's the most helpful thing to say. I understand where you're coming from, but I'm not sure that's helpful language. It could be inviting a conversation about other people's experiences. It could be asking for some help in training your, your employees, if that's something that you have the power to do. What is it that you can do? Like I said, I want to pursue this, not just because there's people in the world telling us we should, but because I believe that God for thousands of years has been telling us that we should. And where there are things in this world that are not as God wants them to be, then it's part of the responsibility of Christians to address that. The kingdom of God looks like it. We should long for the church to look more like it. And as a result, seek for the world to look more like it too. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you embrace every single person. Thank you that you embrace me. Thank you that you embrace each person who is watching this. Thank you that you died for every single one of us. And Lord, we are so good as people at creating barriers where we should be creating bridges. I want to ask that you would enable us, that you would enable us to be part of the reversal of that. Lord, would you guide us? Lord, would you show us what justice looks like? Would you show us some of the steps that you want us to pursue to embrace it? Lord, your kingdom come. Amen.